0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com.
1: Solomon writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Let's pray. Father, uh, come now and I, I ask your help as we do every week that you will speak to us, that your spirit will be active here this morning, that you will work in spite of my feeble words and... The clear hypocrisy of my own heart in relation to what we're going to look at today, Lord, we are all just weak people. We, we don't even realize it. We fight against it. But, Lord, you have made us dependent on you, and I pray that this morning we will be reminded of that and reminded that our confidence has to rest in you and you alone and that you are the good and loving Father that we know you to be that you will always care for us and provide for us and take care of us in every context and situation, realm, activity of life. Remind us of these things We this morning, we ask in your son's precious name. Amen. So a few weeks ago now, uh, I told you some of the story of my childhood about my father's uh, slip disc, about the mental breakdown he had thereafter, being out of work, uh, our family having to file bankruptcy and eventually having to move. And I have to say that I was a little uh, taken aback by the amount of feedback and response I got from that story. I guess I never really thought about it going into that Sunday, like how people would respond to the story itself, because to me, I'm just kind of used to it. But even as I was telling the story that morning, it was interesting. I was looking like around the room, and I see all these like really sad faces looking back at me. Uh, afterwards, I had people coming up to me saying things. I've had even the weeks since people continuing to come back and say things to me. And I can't think of another story that I've ever told that has gotten that much feedback. And quite frankly, it was a little bit strange to me because uh, everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of you seem to feel very sad for me, even though you had absolutely no reason to feel sad for me whatsoever. Uh, you know, those That story was 30-plus years old. All of the negative uh, ramifications of that story had ended long, long, long ago. uh, There was nothing more happening from that. In fact, uh, as I think about it now from my vantage point today, I'm really actually quite thankful for that story. Uh, You know, I think about it like this. Had those things not occurred, would I be who I am today? You know, it's hard to ask those kinds of questions, right, in life, because you just never know, you know, the way God uses things and events of life to sort of shape you, mold you, bring you to certain points. If, if those things had not happened, would I be where I am today? Would I have ever met Jamie? Would we have ever gotten married and had children? Would I have ever known any of you? You know, you just don't know. So in a sense, it's not really helpful to ask those kinds of questions. I can just say that I am today thankful for those things. I wasn't at the time. At the time, those things were very hard, but now 30 plus years, I'm thankful because I can see the providential goodness of God uh, throughout all of that, bringing out a number of things that I would have never perhaps known or been able to experience without that. But let's set all of that aside for just a moment and focus our attention back on the question of why so many of you seem to be quite moved by that story or sad or whatever the case may be, why you had so many reactions to it. As I was thinking about it this week, I narrowed my guesses down to three basic options of why people reacted. First, I think some of you probably reacted because you're just naturally emotional people. You know, you're the easy criers. Uh, I I know that type well because I married one of them. Like, well, look over during a Folgers commercial and Jamie's cried. It's like a... um, you're the kind of people who, who think watching like beaches and Terms of Endearment and My Girl is a fun movie experience, and I'm like, why would you ever want to watch a movie that makes you cry? I don't understand that. Like, Movies are for entertaining, not for crying. That doesn't make any sense. So some of you are just emotional, no doubt, and that's uh, to be expected. Secondly, I would assume that for some of you, you reacted to my story because in some way, shape, or form, it brought to mind maybe some hard things in your own life. Uh, some past experiences that maybe you went through and so you were feeling sympathetic or empathetic. I can never remember which word to use there, but it, whichever one it is, you were feeling that uh, for me. But then I'd say for everyone, third, the fact of the matter is is that we as humans, we relate well to personal stories, right? We just, we just do. Um, when you hear someone else talk about things that they've gone through, you connect with that. We like to hear what people have done what they have experienced. And it does seem to me that God often uses those kinds of stories to help drive home certain truths and to challenge us and open our eyes to things in our own lives. Not because the stories ever replace scripture. I want to be very clear about that. That's not my point at all. I just think sometimes stories can be used by God to put truths in a context that sometimes make a little more sense to us as hearers, make them feel a little more applicable. And that's actually my hope and prayer for these next few sermons. You see, we find ourselves now kind of in a weird little spot. We're in between the end of our study of Galatians and, and my the end of my time here preaching at Cornerstone. And as I was thinking through that in time and talking about that with the elders, I was trying to think of what what exactly should we do that would be helpful during this time. And it, it seemed to me that it would be appropriate to try to use some of my own story uh, and or experience over these past few years of wrestling to share some things with you that I feel like God has been working on my life with, um, been teaching me and challenging me with in hopes that he will teach and challenge you as well. Because the truth of the matter is the things I've wrestled with are not unique to me. And the things that I've been challenged with and the roads I've walked down, the questions I've asked, the struggles I've felt, they're they're not unique to me or to my situation at all. Uh, Every person in this room Will or has or both walk down some of those same roads, and ask some of those same questions and struggle in some of those same ways. and And if I can be a help at all to you in that, to help you think through some of those things biblically, then I would like to do that. But as I say all of that, I want to be very clear that uh, I am speaking to you this morning as a very clear hypocrite because I have not arrived at any of these points that we're going to talk about. You know, I am still learning. I'm still growing. I'm, I'm talking about things that God is still working on my heart with. So, you know, we're never going to have probably all of that figured out. And, in fact, I feel, and I've heard people say this my whole life, I feel like the older I get, the less I know. Does anyone else know what that feels like? You know, the, the, the older I get, the more I realize my shortcomings, the more I realize how, how much God still needs to do in my life. And so, you know, at the same time, with that said, I feel like God is doing things and helping me understand some things that maybe I should have known long ago, regardless I hope that these reflections, and that's really what they are for me, maybe more than a sermon, they're just reflections, will be a blessing to you and will help you think biblically through certain areas as you come across them in the future. And today, I'd like for us to take some time together to think about the topic of fear. And the topic of fear, and you could maybe also insert anxiety, uh, worry, insecurity, I kind of think all those words sort of go together. I want us to think a little bit about the topic of fear. And as I look back over my own life up to this point and kind of evaluate myself, I would not say that, generally speaking, I have been a fearful person. I think, you know, everybody, of course, goes through times of fear. That's obvious. We're all going to have those moments. But, but, you know, for me, I've just never felt like my life has been dominated by fear. And I start with that because I know for some people that actually is a real struggle. And there are very likely someone or more than someone in this room who does struggle very much with fear and worry and anxiety, fear about the future, uh, fear about relationships, fear about money, fear about, you know, you name it, fill in the blank. Their life is just dominated. It's a real, genuine, constant struggle for them. And I'm certainly not downplaying that or belittling that at all this morning because I think that fear uh, for those kinds of people can be a very real, tangible difficulty of life they wrestle with and struggle with day in and day out. It's just that for me, as I look back over my life, I've never, I've never struggled with fear quite like that. And so when I've interacted with people who have struggled with fear like that, I've never quite known how to relate or to really uh, be sympathetic or empathetic, whichever it is, with those people. But, you know, I would say that over these past three years, I have come face to face with fear more than I ever have in life. And that doesn't mean that I think I now understand what those you know, people are going through, but I think I understand a little bit better. And that little bit of understanding that I have has, and I don't think this is an overstatement on my part, it's, it's rocked my world in a way. It has changed the way that I think about myself, about God, and about this life, and I thought it might help others as well. So let's talk a little bit this morning about fear, and I want to begin by diagnosing fear just a bit, okay? And for the record, when I talk about fear this morning, I'm thinking about fear on the horizontal plane, okay, fear of of things in this life, of, you know, relationships, future, whatever the case may be. I'm not thinking on the vertical plane, fear of God, of sin, of judgment. We'll come back to that a little bit next Sunday. But today we're going to talk about and think about fear on the horizontal plane, and we're going to ask the question, why do we fear? And as I thought about how to tackle this, I thought about presenting some of maybe the more common explanations about why people fear, why they worry or anxious about this or that. But I realized if I did that, what would end up happening is I'd present a thing and then I'd get to the end of it and say, but that's not the real reason. And then I'd present another one and say, that's probably not the real reason either. And at the end I'd say, okay, if those aren't the real reasons, what is the real reason? I'd finally get to the point of what the real reason was. So I decided to skip all that and just get to the point of what the real reason was. And the real reason that I think we fear is the fact that we are not really in control. The reason we fear, I believe, is the fact that we are not really in control and we know it and we do not like it. That's what I believe is the ultimate reason for fear. At the beginning of our time together this morning, I read to us two verses from one of my favorite psalms, which, as I told the teens last night, doesn't mean much because I have a lot of favorite psalms, so... Uh, This just happened to be one of them. Uh, Psalm 127 is one of those passages that the Lord has brought back to my mind time and time and time again over the years. And it's these first two verses of Psalm 127 that have taken on a new significance for me in light of the topic of fear. The psalmist says, "...unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain." Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I've preached on this passage before, and I'm definitely going to repeat some of the things I've said in the past, but let's just begin by reminding ourselves of of where he starts. The writer sets up for us two scenarios here that, that act as a springboard for the rest of the psalm. He mentions the two activities of building a house and guarding the city. Now, both of these were very common activities, as you can imagine, in the day this was written. Uh, people needed places to live, just like they do today, so there's always going to be new houses being built. And, of course, the defense of the city is vital, and since they don't have radar or satellites or anything like that, they're going to have guys up on the city walls looking out in the horizon, just watching for any sign of any approaching danger. And while I can't guarantee this, I feel... confident in saying that they didn't just pick any random person off the street to do either of those tasks, that in each of these cases, they would pick someone who was skilled and capable at doing them. So you're not going to pick just the random guy standing on the street corner to build your house. they would be like me, for example. You want want someone who knows what they're doing to come and build your house for you. In the same way, they're not going to just pick any soldier to watch at the city walls. They're going to pick someone who's got great eyesight, who can see the farthest out to stand and watch these walls. Now, what's my point here? My point is, is that what we have described for us here in verse 1 are two normal, everyday activities most likely carried out by people who are highly skilled, trained, and capable of doing them. And yet, notice what the psalmist says about these activities. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You see the word vain repeated two times here. It just literally means emptiness, worthless, as in having no value. In other words, it means pointless. You, you, you can try to build any house you want, but if the Lord isn't it, it's pointless. All your labor is it's worthless. You, you can stay up all night, guard the city, but if the Lord isn't in it protecting your city, all of your staying awake will be pointless. The city will not be protected. In other words, in an, in a very ultimate sense, and I need you to think high level here at this moment, what you see here in verse 1 is that your skills don't matter, your experience doesn't matter, your planning doesn't matter, your discipline doesn't matter, your execution of the task doesn't matter. None of that matters if, if the Lord is not in whatever it is we're talking about. So he's saying here that apart from God's direct involvement in any and every task of life, I would uh, kind of apply this broadly, nothing can actually and truly be accomplished. He is the one who upholds and sustains absolutely everything we do. Now, let's just pause here and think about this for a moment. Because in theory, what I just shared with you, the truth you see here in verse one, should be quite encouraging to us. It should sustain us and and give us some confidence as we go about working. Because, you know, as you think back over, just for example, this past week you've had, Think back to something you've accomplished, something you've done, and recognize that if the Lord had not done that, you would have worked in vain. Your work would have been pointless had God not been in it. So, in a sense, this should be encouraging and sustaining us. Uh, the psalmist here is reminding us of our utter dependence on God in all things. And all things, he gives us two very mundane work related activities, and he's told us, unless God does it, it's pointless. And I think this is applicable to every realm, every area, every activity. Unless God is doing it, it won't get done. We are completely dependent on him and everything. So as I said, this should be encouraging, and it should be sustaining to our souls. But unfortunately, right, we're sinful people. And instead of encouraging and sustaining us, I fear, not because of the truth itself, but because of our wicked hearts, I fear that this truth is at the root, if not all, the uh, uh, root of much, if not all, of the fear that we experience in life, because the fact of the matter is, none of us in this room want to be dependent on God for anything. None of us. None of us want to be dependent on God in anything. We don't want it instead. We want to be in control. And if you want to know why, I would just share it to you like this. Um, It's because we are the children of our first father, Adam. And like him, we want to be like God, not under his rule and reign. We want to overthrow his rule and reign and put ourselves on the thrones of our own heart. We want to dethrone him and replace him with ourselves. We want to be like God not dependent on God. And so we don't want to acknowledge or recognize our utter dependence on him in and for any area of life. We want to feel like we are in control. And to the extent that we both believe and feel like we are in control in certain areas of life, then we don't have fear and we feel quite safe and secure and happy. And to the extent that we do not feel like we are in control and, you know, we're, that feeling is threatened in some way, that's when we experience fear and insecurity. And I just used two words there that I hadn't used really up to this point, security, insecurity. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I don't know who originally said it. The first person I heard say it was David Platt, but I don't think it was original to him, but I'll quote him as being the one it came from, the comment that security is an illusion. Security is an illusion. It is a mirage. It is a smokescreen that appears to have substance when in fact there's nothing there. And let's make this practical for a moment, um, just by way of illustration. Let's talk about two areas that the scriptures talk about. We'll start with money. Think about it like this, and don't answer out loud, just to yourself. Does having a job that provides steady income, uh, does having money in the bank, does having a retirement account or equity in your home make you feel secure? And the answer, I would guess, for every single person in this room is, Probably yes. It makes you feel secure. Now here's the follow-up question. But does it actually make you secure? And the answer to that question is no. Didn't Job have all of those things? And weren't they taken from him in a night? Jamie and I have shared this before. We, we like to listen to books on, I always want to say books on tape, but that's because I'm old. Books on CD when we travel, or now I guess podcast. Uh, I'm really old, uh, I'm like three generations behind there. Um, when we traveled to and from Chicago, and, and a few years ago we listened to Ellie Wiesel's Night. And the, the, the one scene from that story that both Jamie and I have never been able to forget was when uh, Wiesel is describing the final night that he and his family had in the ghetto that they were in. The Nazis would come in and say, hey, look, tomorrow, pack your stuff. You're going to be put on, you know, we're taking you somewhere else. And so that night, all the Jewish families pack their things. The next morning, they're all out in the streets, all their bags and their crates and their barrels. And they've got, you know, one family, and this was the part that stood out to me, had their, their silver candlesticks sitting by their bags. And they're all standing out there waiting, and here come the Nazis, and they put the tell them to get on the trucks, leave their stuff behind. And Wiesel's last look is back down the street at all their stuff, just sitting there by itself, in a moment gone. Life changed forever. There's no security. No security there. It can all be taken from you in a moment. Didn't the rich man, on the very day that his barns were finished and filled to the brim, so that he thought he had plenty for years, did that very night God not say to him, you fool, your life is taken from you and it's gone? Look, having money and possessions might make you feel secure, but I'm reminding you this morning they don't actually make you secure. There's a difference. And on the flip side, for what it's worth, not having money and possessions might make you feel insecure, but I would argue that it doesn't actually make you any less secure than you were the other way, right? You're not more or less secure whether you have the stuff or don't have the stuff, because where does our provision come from? Does it come from ourselves? Are you the one who over the course of your life has provided for you and for your family? Is that all, was that because you're such a, a good provider? No. I would actually go ahead and say a little further, you've never once provided for your family. God has provided through you. Does your bank account provide for you? Is that the safety net? you can? No. God is the provider. Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. I, I have rarely, if ever, done that because I was never really concerned that I needed bread for another day. It was always there. And yet we're told, like, Every day, pray and ask God for his provision because I don't know if I'm going to get another meal. I don't know that. I think it, but I don't know. Jesus told us, don't worry about the food and the clothing because your heavenly Father knows you need these things. If he feeds the birds, won't he feed you? He's simply reminding us that our provision is not from all the things we see around us. It is from God. Ultimately, we are not in control of our provision. God is. And unless God provides for you, listen, you are laboring in vain. Let's go to a second area of illustration the scriptures point out. The area of health and life and safety. I kind of wrap all those three together. You now, people worry and, and fear and have anxiety about all of those areas. You know, if my health is good, I feel secure. But if I get the call from the doctor that I have cancer, now my my life is not secure anymore. Really? Is your life in any more danger? <laughs> any more or less secure before the phone call than after? Well, if I feel like my life is safe, you know, I've got the, the best uh, security system and I've got a Glock in the, in the side, bo- you know, table, I, then I feel secure. Really? That, that's what makes you feel secure? Jesus said, who by worrying can add a single hour to their span of life. Who? You can have the, the best security system in the world, live in the best neighborhood, neighborhood, have guns planted everywhere around your house, and you die in your sleep tonight from a heart attack. And you can be the healthiest person I know and do all the exercising and eating right and get hit by a drunk driver on the way home. Who, by worrying, can add a single hour to their span of life. Ultimately, I'm not in control of my health, my safety, my life. God is. And unless the Lord gives me one more heartbeat and one more heartbeat and one more heartbeat, I I do all these other things in vain. Do do you get the idea? Okay. I just picked two areas as illustration only. You could apply it to a hundred others. We are dependent, utterly dependent. We are not In control. And I have come to believe, at least for my own life, perhaps for yours as well, that fear, worry, and anxiety are an indicator of the opposite that we think we are in control. Now, does saying all of that mean, you know, saying we're not in control, does that mean you shouldn't do anything then? Well, of course not. That's not my point. That's not the psalmist's point as well. You know, having laid a foundation in verse 1 and verse 2 here, I'll go back to it. He begins to contrast two different ways of living. He says, you know, it's vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So in the first part of this verse, you see a picture of of a man who's getting up early every morning. You know, he works hard all day long. He works late into the night. He goes home, goes to bed, gets up the next day, and he does the same thing over and over again. And that's not bad. It's not the hard work part that's bad, because guess what? The houses don't sprout up like dandelions in the night. Someone's got to go build them, right? The builder still has to labor. That's not the point. But as you can see here in the text, the reason why he's doing it is what's wrong here. He's doing it in in anxiety. He's eating the bread of anxious toil. It's as if he feels that all of the results rest on him. And so every day he's... Busy working at home and his life is, is miserable and he's different. And you contrast that to the other option here because verse 1 would tell us that sort of approach is wrong, right? It's pointless to work like that. If the Lord's not in, it's not going to get done. And you see now why it's pointless to worry about that kind of thing. Is because God gives his beloved sleep. He gives them rest. You can have two guys. They both work hard all day long one comes home and goes, it's, I've done what I can do. It's in God's hands. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> Rest. He'll take care of it. It's his responsibility now, not mine. All that worry, it's vain because God gives his children sleep. In other words, God can take care of of those things. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. We should work hard. We should build the houses. We should watch the city walls. He works through our efforts. But the point here is to say that, that to remind us, excuse me, that God, if God isn't in them, it's that's what makes it worthless. It's not the work itself. But if he is in them, they'll succeed. It all comes back to him. He doesn't Want us to worry, to be eating the bread of anxious toil. He wants to give us sleep, the ability to rest in Him and be dependent on Him for absolutely everything we need. And thus we learn that the antidote to fear and worry and anxiety is not just courage or toughing it out or, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that kind of thing. The antidote is recognizing and resting in our dependence on God for absolutely everything in life. So how do we do that? I'll give you four thoughts. First, I think we all, and I will repeat that, we all, whether you are in this room this morning and you are fearing something, you're anxious, you're worrying about something, whatever the case, okay, or not, doesn't matter to me. I think every one of us in here needs to wrestle with and come to grips with our complete and utter dependence on God in all areas of life. Um, We either have to confront ourselves with those truths or we have to be confronted with the truth that we are not in control of anything. Nothing that we are as dependent on God for the next heartbeat as we are for the next meal, as we are for the future of our families, our children, or our careers, or whatever the case may be. We have to, by God's grace, dethrone ourselves from our own hearts. We have to remember that he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and we are merely his creation and the willing recipients of his goodness to us. For me, and again, I can't speak for you, but I can only speak for myself, I have come to see that fear is merely the presenting symptom of the real disease. Does that make sense when I talk about a presenting symptom? Like sometimes you go to the doctor and you're complaining about, you know, hey, this is wrong. And they're like, okay, that's the symptom, but what's really causing that? Maybe the real cause is something different. That's the the presenting symptom, but but the disease is something else. I have come to see that fear is merely a presenting symptom of the real disease in my heart, and that is the pride and arrogance that wants to, that, that literally wants to believe I don't need to be dependent on God for everything in my life. When I'm confronted with something that would attack that, that's when <sighs> fear, anxiety, worry, it's a revealer, a merciful revealer of my heart. So I've come to see fear as being uh, an indicator of pride in my life. and Maybe it is for you as well. I don't know. Second, you have to ask yourself the question, do I really trust God? Do I really trust God? Because if we really trusted God, would we fear? Well, of course not, right? Like that's the easy one to answer. If we really trusted God, of course we wouldn't fear, but, but we, we struggle with that question as we sit there, end up thinking things, not maybe so directly, but like implicitly we begin to think this, does he really know best? Uh, Does he know what I truly need in life? Is he not ultimately perfectly and unchangingly good and loving? Is there ever a moment that God would give us something that is not exactly what we need in that moment? Is he not the, the loving father that has promised to always give his children bread and never a stone. See, if the answers to all of those questions are what we know those answers to be, then then why do we fear? Shouldn't we just trust him completely? And of course, the answers here are we should never fear and we should trust him completely. But these are the very points we struggle with, right? That's the whole point. It's it's because we don't trust him completely, because we fear that those things become so hard. So, So then what do we do? Well, third, you pray. Pray. Like, I'm, and I'm not just like saying it because it's like a good pastoral thing to say. I'm saying it because that's what the scriptures tell you. Pray. Prayer, I have learned, or coming to learn, is a direct reflection of my dependence on God. In other words, the more I am aware of my dependence on God, the more I pray. The less I'm aware of my dependence on God, the less I pray. It's it's like a sliding scale. It works pretty much in tune, okay? I'm more dependent, pray more. Feel less dependent, pray less. It It's pretty easy. And I've noticed that when I begin to fear, which, again, I think is exposing, you know, some of these areas where I thought I was in control and all of a sudden something's hit me that's like, no, you're not. And I'm like, oh, and I'm reacting the wrong way to it. You know, when you begin to experience fear, the Bible commands us to turn in prayer to god philippians chapter 4 verse 6 do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god so so you're worrying about something go to him that's it <laughs> now, that was the, the the command don't be anxious about anything go to him and everything, prayer and supplication with uh, supplication thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because, why? He cares for you. So here's causing. listen, I love you, so humble yourself and come to me with these things. Stop standing there in your pride and come and cast them on me because I love you. I will care for you. So this isn't just a a trite comment to make that the third thing you should do is pray. That is what you have to do if you're going to obey God at this point. This is where you have to go, taking your anxieties to him. And then fourth and finally, rest. Rest. You know, rest doesn't mean don't work. I mean, again, houses don't sprout up like dandelions. You got you to work. I get that. But the way you work and why you work and how you do things should change. Because now you should be resting because you understand that you have a Father in heaven who has promised that he will always care for you. He will always give you what's best. Psalm 46 Verses 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah, think about it. It's God who is your refuge. It is God who is your strength. When the entire world is crumbling around you, this is where you go. It's him, and that's it. There's no security in this world. There's no refuge in your bank account. There's no refuge in a clean bill of health. There's no refuge in a relationship. (laughs) You have one thing that will not change. Don't forget that, and rest in it. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that true? Or is your trust in a chariot or a horse or, again, a bank account or a relationship or a house or whatever? No! You have one place to trust, one place to rest, and this is the Lord our God. So rest in him. Trust him. Recognize your utter dependence on him for everything, and cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Platt was right. Security in this life is indeed an illusion. Don't look at anything or for anything on this world that will be secure for you because it doesn't exist. But I'm here to remind you this morning that you can rest secure in God. He will never fail you. Will you bow your
0: heads? Our God, as our time has been spent together in your word, we are cut to the heart with the problem, honestly, of our original sin, which loves us more than we love you. we ask that you would crush the pride that lies in our hearts so uh, just there sneaky arounds where we can't see it and oftentimes we think it's okay to live this way and that it's wise to be good stewards of our money and time and health etc would you arrest us with your glory and with our need for you we pray that we would not only be those who obey and word and deed and show, and, and show these things, but rather, Lord, that you would have our hearts. Every piece of us would be devoted to you. We thank you for your word, which points this out to us so that we can, too, say that all we have is Jesus Christ. We ask that you give us hearts of repentance to turn from our own ways, the stuff that we love, whatever it is, as each of us are probably a little bit different, God. Would you crush that in us and help us to turn our eyes to you and look to Jesus Christ as our only true hope? May we as a body here at Cornerstone hope in God alone. We turn our eyes to you the rest of this week as well as we need you and ask that you would prepare our way to trust and obey. Give us hearts then to believe and repent. In Jesus' name, amen.